Liverpool 3 0. Call it, take it quickly, Origi! Yeah! Hello and welcome to the Anfield Central podcast. It's been another disappointing week for the Reds, but me, James and Max are here once again to discuss everything Liverpool FC with you. We're going to talk about upcoming game against Manchester United, the disappointing result of the weekend and all the fallout from the European Super League. So guys, sorry to start a podcast in this way again, but 1-1 against Newcastle at the weekend. Um, obviously a very disappointing result in the race for top four and Liverpool's season as a whole. James... First question, top four, is it gone? I, I don't think it's gone, but I think that's me just trying to be too optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I still think that, obviously, if, we, if you can put a run together of four wins out of the last couple of games we've got, I think that could be enough just to see see us sneak in. But then again, it's trying to see where we get those four wins in a row because uh, we could, just can't seem to do that this season. Um, but I think I'm just being optimistic and I don't really want to rule it out, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, like mathematically, with so, like four points is not insurmountable at this point. Particularly, City have to play. Sorry, Chelsea have to play City, which I know they beat them in the FA Cup, but chances of them beating City twice are limited for me. Um, but do I trust Chelsea to drop four points between now and the end of the season? Yeah, yeah, I think that is perfectly possible. Do I trust us to pick up four more points than Chelsea between now and the end of the season? No, no I do not. Um, very much possible we could go on a run. Like It's barely even a run at this point. Um, but we could go on a little run and claim top four. But I seriously doubt it's going to happen. I'm looking at the game on the weekend, obviously 1-1 against Newcastle. First half, the amount of chances that were missed by the front four you can't even kind of level the accusation that one of them was, you know, having an off day. Other than, you know, Salah scored a really, really nice goal, but that game should have been wrapped up three or four nil at half time, really, shouldn't it, James? Like, how many times this season we've seen the front three or four, including Jota on this occasion, be so sloppy? It's just, it's just really odd. It is just an echo of what our season's been. I feel like every time we speak every week, it's always the same thing that we're just not taking the chances. And I'm losing count of how many times we've all three of us have said it, that if Mo Salah doesn't score, that Liverpool don't score. And I think that's just been echoed again this after this weekend's game. I just think, you know, like you said, it, it, that game, we've had three or four chances, should be three or four nil up at half time. The Newcastle game, um, after Christmas, we had a couple of good chances. The West Brom game, we ended up drawing 1-1. Yeah, should have been 4-0 up at halftime in that game. So that killer instinct just seems to have gone from within the team. You know, two seasons ago, we would have been 3-4-0 up at halftime. And kill, sometimes we were killing games off in the first 20 minutes. You could turn the TV off mm -hmm. after 15, 20 minutes and you knew that Liverpool were going to win. But this season, I, we, I think we're all scratching our heads to work out what's going wrong. But yeah, something's going badly wrong. Yeah, I mean, looking at how Liverpool are functioning. I think I honestly I think a lot of the I mean but I don't like using the word blame, but a lot of the issues that Liverpool have had have been going forward. Like I, I've got um uh, FB ref up here and Liverpool's expected goals for this season according to them is 60.7. Anyone want to hazard um hazard a guess how many we've actually scored in the Premier League? 
Expected goals, 60.7. I'd call 38. Yeah, I was going to say half of that. No, 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 no. We're not that bad. We've scored 50 goals. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, no, we haven't. 52. We've scored 52 goals in the Premier League and our expected goals are at 60.7. Now, that is, like, you can't underperform your expected goals by eight as a squad and expect to get anywhere. And to be honest, I'm I'm surprised, as you guys are, that it isn't a bigger gap than that, considering how poor the finishing has been. Um, it's just, yeah, I mean, our system is built around Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah scoring the goals. And they have. For the last three seasons, they have. And Sadio Mane has stopped doing that. Diogo Jota did it for a while, but he's finishing gone off a cliff in the last in the last um, couple of weeks as well. Um, Roberto Firmino has never been a brilliant finisher, but this season he appears to have regressed to the point that it's unbelievable, really. Um, and yeah, Liverpool are in such desperate need of attacking uh, of um, a resurgence of their attack be through a new formation, new signing, or just players getting their shit together. Um, and until that happens, top four is going to elude us, and it will elude us next season. Virgil van Dijk's not coming in to score goals. He'll come back to help shore up the defence, but you can't be at this stage of the season and want to be challenging for a title, and have only scored 52 goals. And then... That's all, I agree with all, all of that, but particularly looking at the case of Sadio Mane, he's probably the best example of what's gone wrong with Liverpool going forward this season when compared to last season. Salah's still kind of hitting the same numbers. Maybe he's a little bit less than he has done last year, but you know, I think he became only the first Liverpool player in Premier League era to score 20-plus goals um, three seasons in a row. So looking at Mane now, his age is in his late 20s. I think we spoke about this on the podcast before, but just to kind of reinforce that point, do we think this is the start of a regression or is it just a poor run of form that's lasted not just a few games, but several months, really? I think it's just a poor run of form that has just seemed to have extended itself. Like you say, um, I think last season was just an unbelievable season for Mane. I think he's always been a consistent goal scorer, but last season he, he was just so far ahead of, I think, what we all expected from him at the beginning of last season. That I think he's just sort of not sort of helped himself really by doing so well this season and so badly this season. I, I don't think it's the start of the decline just yet, unlike Firmino, because we saw that on a more consistent basis of his numbers dropping season by season. Whereas I think Mane's is it's just too sharp of a drop to call it a decline. I just think it's it's an off season, and I think there's plenty of players in the squad as well having an off season. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because. The back of your mind, especially when a player is in form like this, you want your shiny new toy. Your one isn't working at the moment and you want your shiny new toy. You want your Jaden Sancho. You want your Kylian Mbappe for the more fanciful um, <laughs> of our fans. Um, but the reality is, is that Sadio Mane is in his late 20s. It would still take a fee of at least 90, if not more, million to get him out of the club. And he is, I mean, who, who is going to pay that? The, re, the answer is no one. No one is going to pay that fee for him. 
after the form that he's been in this season. Mm. Um, and do I think that he's going to regress and this is just the level he's at now? No, no, I don't. I, th- I think that he's, if you watch what he does off the ball, he still works hard. He, he still dribbles. He's still running at people, but his decision-making in the box is just gone. He always tries to take an extra touch to settle himself or to, um, or to take the ball around the keeper in situations where he shouldn't. Um, and that is a lack of confidence. And I think, and he had COVID earlier this season as well, we mustn't forget. And we don't know what that does to a player long-term. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that writing him off completely is premature, but I think it is certainly a situation that we need to keep an eye on. And you think that we are talking off air just before, that chance he has against Newcastle where he should just place it in first time and he tries to, you know, takes just tries to take it around Dubravka. If he puts that in, that's 2-0. You'd say the game's, you, you never know in the Premier League and you never know with Liverpool. The game's pretty much killed at 2-0, really. I don't know, that's still the first half. So it is really fine margins. The, the massive kind of issue I had with the performance was that just the stark difference between the first half and the second half. Okay, you're going 1-0 up at halftime. You've missed a hatful of chances that you should have scored. You know you should have scored them. But just the drop-off in quality... For me, that was the most worrying thing. What do we put that down to? I'm not 100% sure. I think it's maybe the lack of leaders on the pitch. You know, you haven't got your Van Dyke, you haven't got your Jordan Henderson to make sure that people are, are still in line. You know, you're relying on, you know, Nat, um, not Nat Phillips, uh, Kabak at the back, being the leader, really. And, you know, he's only 20 years of age. So I just think it's a leadership um, problem that we've got at the moment. We, we saw it last week as well against Leeds. Where you're one nil up going into half time, you've created all the chances. Leeds have hardly had a chance in the game. And then all of a sudden, Leeds come out and start pinging it round. So, yeah. as a team that a one nil down shouldn't be doing, it should be the team that are one nil up. So, I just think it's a lack of leadership. I can't see a Liverpool team with Van Dyke and Henderson on the pitch being that easy to beat in the last 10 minutes. I just don't see that happening. Yeah, I agree to an extent. But at the same time, it's not like there isn't experience out there. Like, you've got Thiago, who is a veteran of Champions League campaigns. He's won everything there is to win in Spain and Germany. Um, you've got Mo Salah, Sadio Mane and Firmino, who have been one of the foremost attacking trios in world football for the last couple of years. Um, you've still got Andy Robertson, who's a really big voice in the squad. Mm. Um, there and you've got Alison Becker, who is a Brazilian international goalkeeper. It's not like you haven't got experience. It's not like it's a team of kids who are unsure of what they of what they're doing. I, I think part of the issue, and I've said this before, and I think we're going to get onto something similar to this, is that at the moment we're playing exactly the same system that we did with Henderson, with Van Dijk, and with Gomez, and yet you've taken three of its most valuable components out of this. And if you do that, that's like taking, that's like running a car with no left wheel, no suspension, and no engine. Like, yeah, sure, it's still a car in essence, but it's not going to work. And it's the same with our 433 at this point. It is just not working to the same extent without those key components. And with that in mind, do you think going forward, maybe at least for the rest of this season, but maybe perhaps even more long term, a kind of a 4-2-3-1 with 
like Salah or Jota as the one, and then you're the rest of the front three behind with a base of, at present, a Vinaldum and Thiago or Fabinho and, and Vinaldum or whoever it may be. Do you think that's something that Klopp and the, and the um, training squad should be looking at? I'm sure it's something that you know they have looked at or they've discussed you know on the training ground. But then I think if that 4-2-3-1 doesn't work and you've got all those attacking players on the pitch, who have you got to bring off the bench? I think Klopp likes to leave at least one of them on the bench to try and bring them on to make an impact in the game. Because, you know, Origi was a game changer during that Champions League run, but he's not anymore. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's where it is. We just struggle with the squad depth to maybe Klopp having the trust to play all four attacking players at once. Um, but, you know, we played the 4-2-2 four, four, two, two, two against uh, West Ham. We came away with the three... Uh, the three points away at um, the Olympic Stadium. We, we played really well with um, Salah playing up top with Origi and, and four basically central midfielders um, all playing in different different roles. But I think it's too late in the season now to start switching and start swapping. I think if we were going to do this, it should have been at around Christmas time. Um, but yeah, I think we'll pretty much just stick to where we are now for the end of the season. I think it depends. Like, uh, I, I would agree if we were switching to something completely new. Like, you know, I, like, I think moving to three at the back or something now would be silly. But the four-two-three-one has been done before. But the issue is, is that you need players who are used to the four-two-three-one, especially in that midfield area. You, and there were too many gaps in midfield against Newcastle. Wijnaldum and Thiago just... Thiago was fantastic on the ball, but way too many times Newcastle would just get on the break and our midfield would just get completely bypassed. Um, if you're going to have Thiago in there, and he played in the two at Bayern Munich, we have to remember, with Leon Goretzka. But you had Kimmich would tuck in as well if, um, if Bayern were getting in a bit of trouble and make the pitch narrow. Um, and Thiago needs that support. I think if you play a 4-2-3-1 and Jordan Henderson or Fabinho are in there, then, yeah, great. Or even play a 4-2-3-1, put Thiago up as the 10, give one of the, um, give one of the forwards a rest and play the other three around them is a possibility if you want to do that. Then you get Thiago further up the pitch where he's got fewer defensive responsibilities and we can see more of, his, uh, more of his range of passing. I think right now, though, with Nat Phillips injured and Clark clearly not trusting Reese Williams or Ben Davies at centre-half next to Ozan Kabak, I think that the two in midfield is leaving us a bit exposed without a proper defensive mind in there. Yeah, absolutely. I think Fabinho, the statistics of Fabinho playing at centre-half compared to in midfield, in terms of winning and losing games, they're so different. He's so important in that midfield position. So on Thiago, obviously, he was brought in for not very much money, but we know the quality he's got. He's one of the best in the world at what he does. He's played for you know some of the best teams we've seen over the last 10, 15 years, Barcelona and Bayern Munich. There's still some kind of chatter on social media that he's not, you know, done what you expect him to do coming at Liverpool. Personally, I think that's a little unfair given the injuries we've had and he's not played in a settled midfield or best Liverpool eleven even at all really this season. And he's coming to a brand new 
country in a brand new league. How would we sum up his first year at Liverpool and the success of his signing? I'd sum it up by saying it's been okay. I, I, I can't really give it anything more than that. Like you say, I think because of the price we paid for him as well, we haven't paid an extortionate amount of money. You know, it's 20 million, but it's 5 million over the four years of his contract. So it's not killing the club by having him or by, by buying him. I just think he's come in at the worst possible time. He, he came in and then all the defensive injuries came in. And then Fabinho's had to go centre-back and then he got injured and then Henderson's had to go centre-back and then he's got injured. So he's not really had a fair crack of the whip, I think. And everyone's saying, you know, he was brought in to break down the lines and to create chances. Chances are being created. The front three, just as we've said before, just aren't taking them. That's not his fault. He he can only do so much for the front three. He can only put it on a plate so many times. Um, I think next season is when we will see the best of Thiago. I think it's been hard, especially for the foreign players, going to new clubs in a different country, obviously with COVID. And I think he came over and he had he had coronavirus before he even played a game for Liverpool. So he's not had the easiest start. And then he had the injury he picked up in the derby. So it, at the beginning for him, it was very stop, start, stop, start. So yeah. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt just because we all know he's a wonderful, wonderful player. Um, but I'd sum him up as just doing okay so far. Yeah, it's Thiago's difficult to analyse this season because, well, when I first saw him against Chelsea and then against Everton, he was in a midfield with Henderson and Fabinho and he was the most advanced of those three and he had those two with the legs covering him. And he won man of the match in both of those games. Now, Thiago showed last season that he is one of the best deep-line playmakers in football. He has got a passing range to rival basically anyone. But this thing of him not having assists is uh, such a false argument. Because if, if you look at his time at Bayern Munich, he wasn't getting loads of assists and loads of goals. This, this, this obsession with midfielders being put in two boxes, either a defensive midfielder or a goal-scoring midfielder, I don't know when this happened, but it's very annoying. It, like if Javi was playing today, he, he wasn't a guy who got loads of goals or assists, but he's one of the best central midfielders of all time. But today, you get dickheads on social media going, ah, yes, but he hasn't got 10 goals and 10 assists, or look at his tackle numbers compared to Lee Catamol or some bollocks. <laughs> like, like, I'm not saying Thiago is as good as Xavi. He's not. Um, but if you're going to judge him, you have to judge him in a settled system with a settled midfield and judge him on doing what he does best, which is making passes and inroads to allow other players to create chances. If, if you want a microcosm of what Thiago is at his best, go back and watch last season's Champions League final. Watch his pass to Yozua Kim before he sets up Kingsley Coleman for the goal. That is what Thiago does. He finds people in advanced positions from deep. He doesn't make the chance himself. That's what he was brought in to do. And we haven't seen him do enough of that, partially because he hasn't been in good form and partially because he hasn't had the system in place to allow him to do that on a consistent basis. 
Yeah, I think a lot of times he plays the pass before the assist. I think that's kind of like basically what, what you're saying there, and that was his role. He, there was a statistic on Twitter the other day about how more than any player in Liverpool squad, Thiago plays progressive passes, which are defined as passes that move the team 10 yards or more up the pitch, which is exactly kind of what you're saying, and that's his role. So until we see him in a midfield that's settled, stable and comfortable, hopefully next season we have less injuries and we can have more of a settled team, that's when we'll see what what he's about. I think label, labelling him a flop or anything like that is far too early and, and too extreme. Um, in terms of Liverpool's squad, I think we've spoken enough, time, enough times on this podcast to know that it needs some kind of refresh this summer um, with fringe players probably going and, and some new faces coming in. In the most recent weeks, Klopp has kind of used the same players, kind of running them into the ground almost to some degree. For a great example is Andy Robertson and Gini Wijnaldum. They're both probably not been in great form, especially the last six months or so. I think Robertson's crossing and passing has been the poorest I personally have seen it since he's been at Liverpool. Do we think Klopp doesn't trust his fringe players or just that there's been so much disruption in the squad this year due to injury that he doesn't want to change that kind of core 11 any more than he has to because it's already unsettled enough? I just think he doesn't trust the fringe players. I, I, and it's no disrespect to some of them. Some of them have played well for us in the past. You look at Origi in the Champions League run. Oxley chamberlain when we first signed him, Shaqib was a breath of fresh air two seasons ago. But they've had the chances this season. It, you know, they've started games. Actually, Chamberlain started on the right against Burnley. Shakiri started away at West Ham. Yeah. So these players have all been given a chance and just haven't done it. And I think because we're coming more towards the crunch time of the season now, I just think he's he's just going with, you know, the usual starting eleven because. Is it worth throwing players in who haven't done it coming off the bench this season or haven't done it when they've got a chance when it matters the most? And I, I just don't think Klopp's prepared to take that risk. Um, and I think we'll see a lot of them move on this summer, mainly the likes of Shakiri and Origi. I think their time's up. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the only one that I don't understand uh, not seeing is Kostas Simakas. I mean, like, Robertson has not exactly been lighting the place up for the last couple of months. Um, uh, he's, he's so consistent most of the time. Like He's always been 7 out of 10 whenever he's played for the last couple of years. And even at the beginning of this season, he was excellent. Um, and he's just he's just regressed, really. And why, why not give the guy a run? Like Even if it's just for a game or two, but we've barely seen the guy. I know he's been injured a bit, but like he's been fit for a while. Um Jordan Shakiri's been fine when he's come off the bench and he's had a couple of highlights. I mean, that pass for Mohamed Salah against West Ham was sublime. Uh, so, yeah, I think he will go and I think he'll fetch a half-decent fee. Um, uh, reports that he wants to go to Italy. I would not be surprised at all if he went to Italy and also if he did very well in Italy. Um, uh, but if you look at the bench, realistically, Naby Keita, I think we all have to finally accept Naby Keita for what his signing has been, which is a flop. Um, like, there are mitigating circumstances, but the guy can't stay fit. And when he does come back, he takes a while to 
get his mojo back. And then by the time he does, most of the time he gets injured again. So I, th- I think now is the time that we have to cut our losses on him. You look at the centre-half depth, what is there realistically at the moment? <laughs> um, yeah, you look at that bench and there's just there's no one who's really going to turn the tide. The player who I'm actually, who actually I think would have been quite nice to bring on with his energy and, and with his ability to press and his versatility would have been Takumi Minamino. Um, but he's now injured at Southampton. So, yeah. <laughs> overall, overall, there needs to be investment in the summer with no money, according to our financial results. Well, we'll get onto that a little bit later. But I think the biggest indictment of whether Klopp trusts the squad or not is how much we've seen James Milner feature recently. The last kind of four or five games, both games against Real Madrid, he's starting. And it's saying, we will love James Milner. Like, we know what he is. We know what he does. He will absolutely run himself into the ground. He's functional. He's hardworking. He'll do any job you ask of him. But at this, at his age, you know, 34, 35, coming to the end of his career, you don't want him starting in Champions League quarterfinals against Real Madrid. And I think that's the biggest kind of indication of where Klopp is at with, with some of these fringe players now. Now, I think I speak for football fans everywhere where I say we're all very relieved um, that this Super League chat kind of fell on its arse quite quickly last week after just about two days of being proposed by the so-called elite clubs. Um, it was kind of everyone ended up pulling out um, quite soon after we recorded last week's podcast, which was pretty fun. Um, <laughs> but how do we feel now? I've had a week to kind of reflect on what's happened. It's obviously sent anger throughout football and the top six clubs have came back with their tails between their heads tails between their legs even not their heads um that would be something um first of all i guess is we saw on social media john henry unlike a lot of the owners and and faces of the of these clubs came out and gave a groveling apology to liverpool fans on twitter um with a video First of all, before we go into the ins and outs of this, how do we feel about what when we watched that video, James? Were we did we sympathise with him at all, or as I suspect, did we just think it was all absolute nonsense? I just thought it was a load of bollocks, to be honest with you. I think, um, I mean, you could tell that if you looked at his glasses during the interview, you could see the reflection of the <laughs> words he was saying on a screen, which just tells me that somebody's written what he's, you know, his press officer has sort of just written it for him and said this will buy you a bit of time um didn't believe a word of it um i'm sort of i'm sort of glad that we're the only one with the owner that have come out and said you know what the situation what it was and why they've done it i think every other club is sort of looking to their owner to say you know why did you do it i think you know um, the glazers released a statement um it's about it really but yeah, just didn't believe a word of it whatsoever. Um, he's only come out and said it because he hasn't got what he's wanted. Um, but yeah, I'm just glad it's not happening as well. I think it's it was a good day for football last Monday. I think it's so. Uh, did did I believe his apology? No, not for a second. I think if the Super League had been there for actually doing it, and and there haven't been that resistance, then absolutely he would have done it. And this bollocks of asking what would Shankly do is bullshit. However, from from the interactions that I saw, people raised a very good question. And I will freely admit that I, I 
last week was saying, get those bastards out of my club. And in the ideal scenario, I would absolutely say yes. But the reality is that who so Liverpool is now worth around three billion quid if reports are to be believed. Who is going to buy us? Who is A, going to maintain the status of Liverpool as we are now English? Well, we're still just English champions and uh, Champions League um, champions of two seasons ago and is going to um, behave in a manner that Liverpool fans would like them to and is going to do all sorts of infrastructure and be altruistic. The answer is that that person does not exist. Um and if we do get bought by someone who isn't FSG, do we want blood money to be running the club? I, I mean, I don't. I, I don't want FSG running the club, but I don't know who's going to run it if they do sell it. And I, I can be absolutely sure that it isn't going to be anyone who's any better than FSG from a moral standpoint either, I'm sure. And even if they are, the dif the difference will be negligible. You don't get the amount of money that is required to buy a Liverpool football club by being nice. You get it by being ruthless and by being morally onerous in most cases. So that's what kind of depresses me at this point. Yeah, that's the big question really that I've been having an internal debate with myself. I think what you said there is exactly how I felt on watching that John Henry video. Completely agree with you both. Didn't believe a word of what he said. I've never been FSG out really but last week was a turning point I definitely was watching that video and I definitely was when the Super League was announced now thinking about all those things you just mentioned there's no like you say there's no nice billionaires there's no ethically pleasing billionaires who are going to come in and run the club in that way keepers competing for top honours and you know be essentially good people I guess the closest you're going to get to that is something that's maybe going to happen at Arsenal is where the owner of Spotify, Daniel Ek, who's a billionaire, but he's a fan, he's trying to start some sort of takeover bid alongside Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira um, to try and take charge of the club. It doesn't look like that will happen, but that's maybe the next best thing. So are FSG kind of the best of a bad bunch almost, James? Yeah, I think they are. I think... There was, I think there was a worry maybe among City fans in the early days when they got bought out um, by the Middle East, saying that, you know, if they get bored, it's, you know, this is just a business to some people. If some people get bored, they could just sell you at any point. I think what FSG have sort of given us is consistency and have always sort of, there's never really been much speculation about the owners not wanting to be at the club. They've always firmly come out and said, we still want to be the, the owners of Liverpool. We have no intention to sell. I mean, just getting them to sell a, a couple of shares, uh, was it two weeks ago we had the big cash injection? I think that was quite a big step from them because usually they like all the control. Um, but yeah, FSG are definitely the best of a bad bunch. I mean, you wouldn't want to be run by the Glazers, would you? I think they were 10 times worse. Um, than, than FSG. So I think at the meantime, like you and Max have said, until that magical person comes along and tries to buy the club, I think we're just going to have to put up with it and and hope they, you know, they, they try their best to sort of rectify what they've done. And I think that'd be by uh, 
signing Mbappe or Haaland this summer. I think I might forgive them then, but up until then, I'm still going to have my, uh, my my feelings towards them still going to remain. Well, that's the thing, is that I, I, I don't like FSG. I'd like to make that very clear. I don't like how they've run the club. I don't like um, their actions. I don't like... The fact they tried to furlough staff, I don't like the fact they tried to join the European Super League, I don't like most of what they've done in terms of um, portraying the club to the outside world. I mean, you know, as as custodians of the club from a business sense, I don't think anyone can deny that they've done a, a very good job in making the club more valuable than it was. I mean, they picked the club up for what, 300-ish million yeah. when we were at our lowest ebb. And we're now worth, you know, around three and a half, three billion. I mean, we we do not win the Premier League. We don't win the Champions League without without that sort of um, value growth. We we don't whether we like that or not. That is simply the truth. Um, but if we look at the owners of current of Premier League clubs who are operating at our sort of financial expenditure or even higher. You have Manchester United are owned by the Glazers, who are as bad, if not worse, as James rightly said. You have Roman Abramovich, who, <laughs> who is, you know, he's not exactly the nicest bloke in the world. You have Middle Eastern royalty and you have the Cronkies. Spurs aren't operating at the same economic level. They spent a lot of money on their stadium, but they're not spending money on, you know, players left, right and centre. Um and you've got Cronky running us. I mean, like, it's not exactly, you know, Mother Teresa and friends, is it? <laughs> and and Daniel Ek. I mean, we talk about Daniel Ek and, like, oh, yeah, he's an Arsenal fan. Like, okay, he's an Arsenal fan and he wants to buy Arsenal. That doesn't mean that he's a good bloke. Like, you know, all, all sorts of awful people support the same football team as, I'm, as I do, I'm sure. But that doesn't mean that they are you know good people just by association with a football club and i seriously doubt that daniel Eck is a you know lovely altruistic bloke who has you know done all the like is always nice to people and has never shafted anyone in his rise to become a billionaire and owner of the biggest music streaming service in the world like come on like getting a nice guy to run a club in the way that fans want him to is fanciful and at this point, yeah, FSG is the best of a bad bunch out of that lot, I think. With that all in mind, there's been some suggestion that England might try and adopt a 50 plus one model, a little bit like we see in Germany, where the fans don't, it's kind of often misunderstood that the people think the fans own the club. It's not necessarily true. The, the investment does come from external sources, like I think Bayern Munich are financed by um, some people in the Middle East as well. But the 50 plus one model basically allows fans to have a membership which gives them certain powers when it comes to major decisions being made by the club. So, for example, a European Super League comes along, all the fans who are members will have a vote and the outcome of that vote will be what happens. So there's a lot more kind of influence and decision making by the fans, even if they don't necessarily own the club as is sometimes misunderstood when talking about that model. Do we think that is something that is likely to ever happen in the UK? And if so, is it, is it a good thing? I know there is a petition going round to try and get fans to, to sign it, um, to try and 
get the parliament to speak about the 50 plus one and try and get the government to enforce it into the football clubs. Um, I think for the basis of the, the European Super League, yeah, I think it's a great idea to, to for the fans to have a say, I think. But regardless of the 50 plus one, I think the fans should always have a say anyway. I don't think there should be a rule in place to say, oh, because you're a fan, you can now have a say. I think we should have always had a say yeah. all the way along through this, like we, we were saying last week, you know, None of us think. I know we weren't going to be privately consulted by FSG. They weren't going to text everyone and say, "Listen, what do you think about this?" You know, but they didn't sort of speak to the big, you know, the big groups that are around the club. Um, so I, I think it would be a good idea, the fifty plus one. But I think I'd prefer to sort of like to think that the, we could have a say without needing to enforce a rule onto the clubs to give us a say. I think they should just have the. And through the kindness of their own hearts, just, well, I think this is very naive for what I'm saying, and it's it's like being in a dreamland. I think that you know, the the owners should be able to have it within themselves to ask the fans without having a, a, a rule there to tell them what to do. Yeah, it's the fifty plus one rule is interesting because uh, yes, fans will get um, will get power to um, make you know decisions and that's something that should never have been gotten rid of in the first place like there should be no sort of owners on a higher plane um you know making decisions that that are that affect millions of fans around the world who are the ones who give the income that is required to support clubs of this size and nature um, the 50 plus one rule obviously does leave a bit of room for the sort of domination that Bayern Munich has had of the um, of the Bundesliga. And also it doesn't mean that, you know, automatically every club is going to be run in a really nice and wholesome way. Like Uli Hornes, who runs, um, who's the president of Bayern Munich, is hardly a lovely bloke either. Um, you know, these people are still businessmen. They're still people who who run businesses that are worth, well, I mean, they're presidents of businesses that are worth, in some case, billions of pounds. Like, you don't do that without being a bit ruthless and and by having an understanding of how this ultra-capitalist um, state of football works and a willingness to work within that framework. Framework. Whether the 50 plus one rule comes in or not, that isn't going to change. I think that the 50 plus one rule is a better arrangement than what we have now, but that doesn't mean that it's perfect. I think that some people are getting, uh, holding it up as this shining light, this way to fix football in this country. And it is not that it isn't that I think it's, I think it's a better idea than what's going on now, but I don't think it's this shining savior either. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see what happens with that. Uh, this week, obviously, FSG and Liverpool released their annual kind of accounts, and it was shown that there was a f- club made a £46 million loss in the last last um, year. I guess that's not unexpected when you see the pandemic's gone on, and I think a lot of clubs have, have, have suffered, not just in England, but across Europe. Um, the kind of standouts from those reports that I picked out was there's been quite a significant loss in broadcast revenue and also an increase in player and staff wages. With that in mind, do we think this summer this is going to impact the investment FSG might make on the squad in any way? To be honest with you, when I saw that figure, I was quite shocked that it wasn't more 
because of how long fans haven't been able yeah. to go into the stadiums, you know, you, it was one season, go, you've had one full season and one half a season of fans not going into stadiums. Um, so I was quite, I expected it to be a little bit more than that, maybe more towards the £100 million mark. But obviously we don't know how much the, the sponsors are paying the club, you know, everything that the club is sponsored these days. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it should impact because I think the owners should be able to see the fall that we've had from last season and should now know that this is what we have to do. You look at Manchester City, they've got two squads, let's be honest, and they can finish first and second in the Premier League, want to win the league, couple want to win the FA Cup. The squad depth they've got is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so I think, you know, the owners, I wouldn't think they're naive enough to think that they can then challenge again next season because we haven't been able to this season. And as we were speaking before about the problems, and Max said, you know, Van Dijk's not going to come back in and score the goals. He's just going to shore the defence up a little bit. So you can't, we can't put all of our eggs in one basket on the return of Van Dijk and the injury he's got. You never know what he's going to be like when he comes back. So I'd just like to think that, you know, the, the owners, because we haven't spent anything for the last two seasons, really, Thiago and Jota and then Adrian, Timis, Gass and um, Minamino. We haven't, you know, spent loads over the last two and a half years since winning the Champions League. So I'd like to think they're going to put their hands in the pockets this summer. Yeah, I think that there is this, this um, train of thought going around that because Liverpool made a loss of £46 million, that that means Liverpool aren't, have no money. Liverpool aren't going to spend money at all. Like, you know, club, like clubs all over the world operate at a loss. Manchester United are nearly half of... Um, yeah, sorry, let me start that again. Manchester United are nearly half a billion pounds in debt, like, and they're still making signings. Barcelona are in mountains of debt, and they're still making signings. Just because a club makes a makes a loss does not mean that signings are impossible. However, the way that FSG run the club is basically that it runs within its means, and right now that means that we're not going to make huge signings. The The idea that Kylian Mbappe or Erling Haaland are going to come in, for example, which I still see going around on social media, despite my best efforts on this podcast to squash these rumours, will not happen. This sort of signing is just fanciful. Unless FSG make really big financial commitments to the club from their own money, which has been severely hit by the pandemic, we're not going to see huge signings. £30 million signings here or there, sure. Like Ibrahim Kanate's fee is supposed to be around £32 million. That sort of budget, fine. I could see that being spent on a forward as well. Not an Mbappe, maybe a Daniel Marlin kind of player and maybe a midfielder. But we're not going to be you know, spending loads this summer. And I think those signings will be funded by a lot of outgoings. I don't think it's going to be a, you know, hundred million pound net spend at all. Yeah, I think it will be those likes of the Rigi and Shakiri that we were talking about earlier. They'll be, you could probably get decent money for them, but you can probably make a profit on Ben Davis for taking for a free and selling for about five million pounds. Um, yeah, we'll have to see, but I think we're all in agreement there. Some kind of, Squad refresh is needed this summer, so hopefully that that will happen. 
as always, we'll end on the big question of the week where I ask the guys a question from the world of football not related to Liverpool to get their take on it. This week, it's will anyone ever win the quadruple in this country? We thought maybe Man City could do it this year. There was a lot of talk about that in the media. I know Guardiola never really wanted to talk about it in his press conferences, but there was lots of talk about it in the, in the English press. Obviously, we've seen teams win trebles before, buying, for example, in Germany just last year. Um, the famous Man United one from 1999 and Barcelona have done it fairly recently as well. But do we think it can ever be done where a team in England will win the league, the FA Cup, the League Cup and the Champions League? Man City's hopes of doing that obviously ended with their champ- uh, FA Cup semi-final defeat. They could still win the Champions League. I'm sure they'd be quite happy with just the three. But do we think this will ever happen in, in England? Uh, I don't think it'll ever happen. I think there's just... There's too many games, um, and I think the level of the game is is only gonna the quality is only going to increase. I think the demand on the players is only going to increase alongside that, and I think with the new Champions League format that's going to be out in 2024, they're adding is it another 10 games into the yeah. structure, so it's going to be even harder for squads to try and get there. So I, I don't think they'll they'll ever do it. Um, I think you know even if you just get to two cup three cup finals and you're playing the league you still play 68 games so then to add you know another 10 games on with the champions league and and if you've got replays involved in any of those cup ties i think it's just gonna be way too much for any of the english clubs because i think our league demands more of players than than any other league i'll say this if any team is going to win this quadruple it will be this manchester city squad under pep guardiola is the best squad, I say squad, not team, that it's not the best 11 I've ever seen in England, but it is the best overall squad that I think I've ever seen in England. It is so deep, it is ridiculous. Um, but the reality is this City squad is deep enough and good enough to win a quadruple. It absolutely is. But you also need a bit of luck. You need that bit of fortune in a game where it's not going for you, where it just like it's all gone to shit. And against Chelsea, it was not going for them at all in the FA Cup semi-final. And they just need they needed that luck, and that luck didn't come. Um, and yeah, I think that if if Man City can just get that bit of luck when they need it, I think they are perfectly capable of doing it. I don't think they will do it because I don't think you can be that lucky in that many games. Um, because City, brilliant as they are, have not been amazing in every single game that they've played this season. They haven't. No one ever will be. Um, and that's what you need to do, really, to win the quadruple. So, yeah, I don't think it will happen. But if anyone's going to do it, it's this City squad. Yeah, it's really quite amazing when you look at that City squad, isn't it? And just how you talk about the deepness there, just how many options they seem to have in every single position. And then even, you know, like looking at ourselves at Liverpool, you know, we're, we're not going to sit here and get the violins out for Liverpool not having as good a squad as Manchester City because a lot of teams in England and in the Premier League would be like, all right, you almost won the league in the Champions League in the last two years. Like, stop feeling sorry for yourselves. But even that comparison from a team like ourselves, who are still obviously hugely, have got so many great players, still so far away in terms of squad depth from Man City. I think everyone in the top six, even Chelsea, have bought so many forwards in the last year. It's still nowhere near the same same quality. So I think you're right. If anyone's going to do it, maybe it will be this Man City team um, in the next 
few years, but it's kind of going to be really, really difficult. We've seen Guardiola make some really weird tactical decisions in Champions League fixtures before um, in the past. Leon last year, for example, he made some weird, weird changes. Um, so there's always got that going against them as well. Um, that's it for this week. Um, so James Max, thanks for your time as always. Thank you for having us. Always a pleasure, mate. And we'll be back next week for another episode of the Anfield Central podcast where we will talk about Manchester United fixture as well as all the latest Liverpool news. For more information or to hear more from us, you can visit our website, anfieldcentral.co.uk or visit us on Twitter at anfield underscore central. Until next time, goodbye.